When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you want to think about shelf life, uh, you know, you, you really don't want to be too specific because that's true. It's going Although to be it's, it's going to be unavoidable. We were stockpiling these until we have I think 10 and then we're going to. How many, how many do we have? This is, this is seven. We're getting there slowly, mm-hmm. but surely. But, but one, we recorded one with Dana Gould a few months ago and we were talking about this last time with the doll guys. I'm going to have to, we're going to have to do something like maybe a sound effect every time. Almost everybody we talked about on that episode has since died. <laughs> There's, remember there's a whole bit where we talk oh, about yeah. what Hugh Hefner's sex life must oh, be like yeah. and how sad oh, it must oh, be. And it's like, oh, you want to cut oh. in and go, of course he was alive. Wouldn't we? <laughs> well, let me just do a little, a little thing at the a beginning. Warning, at the beginning. Say, you know, you're going to hear the names of a lot of people who are we're we're now, not, not, not dead us. when we talk. Yeah, about exactly. <laughs> Hopefully we're still alive when you're listening to this. So, um, it's great. But yeah, I, um, uh, why don't we uh, jump right in? Hi, I'm Josh Olson, and you're listening to The Movies That Made Me, the official podcast of Trailers From Hell. And our guest uh, this week is, let me, let me figure out, I didn't really prepare anything because I'm such a, a fan, but, you know, started out, we're about the same age and, and you'd see this kid in these amazing movies and not that I want to be an actor, but God, he got to work with De Palma and John Carpenter and Rodney Dangerfield. Um, and, and you're like, God, that son of a bitch. I, I, that's, <laughs> that's what I would want to do if I were an actor. And then he segued in the late eighties into directing with a movie that I discovered sadly on video, um, probably about a year or so later, but, um, called the chocolate war, which is an astonishing film. Um, just an absolutely beautiful adaptation of Robert Cormier's novel. If you have not seen it, seek it out. And then proceeded with, uh, just this kind of run of fantastic films, all literary adaptations. Am I correct? Yeah, there was, um, yes. The only one that wasn't from a book ultimately was seeing detective, detective, which was, Potter's own adaptation of his own right series, and then uh, but but before that, in between Chocolate War and Singing Detective, uh, there was Mother Night, uh, which is a magnificent film, incredible performance from Nick Nolte, which I guess is redundant, easily. And there haven't been many, so I guess this isn't saying much, but easily the best Vonnegut adaptation. Followed by Midnight Clear, uh, which is one of those rare war movies. In fact, we talked about this uh, last week. How hard it is to make a war film that actually uh, is convincingly uh, anti-war. And uh, then Waking the Dead, which is an absolutely beautiful, kind of haunting, I don't know what you mean, it's not a, it's, not a, it's a romance. Well, it's, it's a bit a, of a mashup, because there's a mystery element to it, there's sort of a supernatural element to it a bit. Maybe. There's a, there's a political, well, yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there's an inference of, there's a, yes. there's a very political, I mean, the whole thing is is about, you know, people's politics and how it affects their lives and um, and, but yeah, and, they were and all their from, afterlives, and they're all from they're all from books. They're all from and, from books that I love by authors yes. that I admired. So and I, uh, and you adapted the scripts as well for those. In or, on mo- on not not in all cases. Uh, the 
Mother Night, the Kurt Vonnegut adaptation was actually done by Bob Whitey. Oh, sorry. Produce it with me. Okay. Um, and and actually, the way we got to do that was somehow girl. <laughs> but anyway, I, I'm not. Saying, but anyway, we're here with um, the great who continues to do amazing work in um, uh, like well, most God's good sake, directors. Tell them his these name. Days. Uh, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. And now I'm not going to mention yours. Uh, but we're here with Keith Gordon. Um, the very great Keith Gordon, uh, who's directing on, uh, I see your name a lot of Fargo, which always. Yeah, I've done a whole bunch of Fargo. Yeah. I've been doing, working a lot. I mean, look, TV right now has become a place where there's really interesting material with interesting yeah. ideas. And I'm still struggling to get my little independent movies made, but it's been a while. I mean, it's gotten very hard. And so I've got two projects that I'm 15 years into and, you know, both of which I've not given up on. I'm actually... I'm actually kind of turning down a bunch of TV work right now to try to get back to oh, my movies I want to make. I kind of great. saved up a bunch of money and went, okay, now I'm going to take like a year and try to get one of these films made. Um, but I've really enjoyed the TV thing has been an amazing place to be able to go and work with wonderful actors and wonderful writers on really interesting stuff. So it's been a great, and I could pay the rent. So it's been a lovely thing that, that as, as it got harder and harder to make independent films, there, there came a place for those of us who wanted to go and work on good things with good people. So yeah. I'm very grateful for it. Um, we also have, of course, as as usual, I, 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 our our captain, our fearless leader, uh, the man who knows everything there is to know about cinema, uh, including, I suspect, um, uh, what what it's like to spend a little while trying to get a great film made. I don't know. That's not something most of us know about in this room. Um, <laughs> Joe Dante. <laughs> Spending a lot of time trying to get films made. And 15 years is just about the right. That's man. about it. Yeah. 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 I mean, you stay with something that you really care about and I'm, you don't give up. I'm coming up on 11 with, uh, with one. So, uh, yeah, I still have, a... <laughs> I'll do four it's more hard, years of it's this. It's so hard for people who haven't been through it to understand that process because the other thing that happens, of course, and you see, you see young filmmakers get fooled by it all the time because getting from nowhere to almost there isn't the hard part. Is getting from almost there to actually making it. That's impossible. But so I'm always meeting young filmmakers who go, oh, I'm like right there. I'm always like, yeah, I know. We're all right there. You know? um, but that last thing, that last step, the, the real money being in a real bank that you can go and spend and make Well, that's the because then, uh, unlike when I started, the, the money was coming from someplace. It was coming right. from a studio. It was coming from a producer. It was coming from somebody. Now the money is coming from here, 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 Liechtenstein. You know, every, all these different pieces for the puzzle. I mean, you go to the movies, you sit, you sit through five minutes of logos at the beginning of the movie yeah. where it produces all the people who, and then you keep thinking, what do the accountants do? How, how, how does anybody make any money? How do they even know who gets what? There, there's just so many pieces to the puzzle and, and they don't necessarily all stay together up until the day you start shooting. Yeah. Then one just falls out. And when one falls out, they all, the whole house of cards collapses. And they, you know, we have all read stories about movies that are actually in production that have gone by the wayside because of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, and then just the whole process, even when it's going well, is so slow. Yeah. Um, it's still my favorite. I mean, I can't tell you how often, uh, you know, between, between when we started shooting a history of violence and when it actually came out, my mother would probably call up every two weeks going, is something wrong? I go, no, why? She's like, well, well, why, why is it, when's it coming? And you go, mom, it's coming out in nine months. Well, what's wrong? Why is it so long? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, Keith, um, I'm normally I'd, uh, talk about why we're doing this subject, but I actually, uh, caught, caught a glimpse of your list and, um, uh, the last film on your list, the top of your list is sort of the reason we're here. So I'll, I'll save that story until we get there, but Keith is going to come in. Uh, we want to talk about, um, uh, political films and what is a political film and, uh, what are the good ones and, 
and what are the ones that have stuck with you and kind of made you um, uh, interested in kind of exploring uh, politics in your work? Because pretty much, tell me if I'm wrong, I'm sort of running through like every film you've made, certainly there's a very strong political element, whether or not it's overt or metaphorical. Well, I would say four of the five particular, I mean, again, seeing detective, seeing detective, not so seeing much, detective there's some, you know, there's some around the edges. Yeah. But the, the first four, which was really mine, I mean, seeing detective, I was, I came into very late in the game, a director fell out and I'm a huge Dennis Potter fan. So it was like, Oh my God, a chance to work with Robert Downey on a piece of Dennis Potter. But that wasn't mine in the same way. I was like, okay, we start shooting in six weeks. You want to come do a job? I'm like, okay. Um, <laughs> but all of my, the films that were mine all have a political element in one way or another. I mean, Chocolate yeah. War is, is a is a metaphor for politics. Um, Midnight Clear is an anti-war film. Uh, Mother Night is all about the politics of the personal um, yeah. and how the choices we make affect the world around us. And then Waking the Dead is about two people who are very politically passionate, one of whom works within the system and one of whom believes if you're in the system, you are inherently corrupt. And a love story between two people who sort of have that that between them. So... I'm often drawn to political subjects, although it's not like I sit down and go, I want to make a film about politics. Right. It's just something that seems to, in the end, be part of what interests me. Uh, because, I, you know, there's all those cliches, but I think they're true, which is life is politics and politics is life. I mean, anytime you deal with moral choices and all that, there's a political element to it because it's going to affect how you interact with the world and, and how the world around it interacts with you. But there's concentric circles of that. And we, yeah. you know, we were talking about possible subjects and, and politics and political films. And what first struck me is, yeah, well, how do you define that? Because there's the innermost circle, which is literally political, you know, films about the political process, whether it's election or all the president's men or whatever. And then there's the next rung, which are sort of issue films. They're not about politics, but they're about an issue, an anti-war movie, a, a film about the, you know, about uh, the refugee crisis, a film that's an issue film. And then there's that third layer, which is political because it's about how people interact with the world around them and how society and humanity dance with each other. Um, you know, something like I, I've done a few episodes of a show I love for HBO, and I'm, I'm allowed to say great things about it because it's not mine. In TV, it's not yours. <laughs> so you, you can you can you can say something's great without sounding terrible and egotistical. But I worked on the show called The Leftovers, which I love deeply, and that's a show that's very personal. It's about people dealing with grief and loss and all that, but because it's dealing with all of society going through grief and loss. To me, it's a very political show. It's not political in terms of pro-Democrat or Republican or pro-civic point of view, but it is about how do we live together as a society and how do we function in a world where we are distorted by our own losses and pain and needs. Um, so to me, there's all these circles of, of what's political. Yeah. Um, so I tried to find things in kind of coming up with a list. I tried to kind of find things that had some of those elements and that really um, – stuck with me and affected me deeply. I mean, I, I'm not a great believer in best lists because it's so personal. Yeah. You know, it's like, what's a best movie? And what I have, I have trouble with awards every year because it's like, how do you say this is better than that? You know, yeah. it's like we all have ex personal experiences. So I thought, well, let me come up with the political films that changed me. Right. That changed who I am as a filmmaker or changed who I am politically uh, as a human being. And that kind of altered my, my uh, path. So they tended to be from a certain period because I grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s. So a lot of the films were – they're not necessarily the best political films in, of all time or they're not – that era was not necessarily the most political. But it's when I was coming of age. So that's when there were films around that I would sit there and go, holy crap, I have to rethink how I look at the world. Um, yeah. So that was sort of my – the criteria I could, I could eventually end up on. But, but certainly there's a lot of things that we, and we can talk about 
you know, political films by nature and what are they and political films where you're making them for the people who already agree with you versus political films where you're trying to change somebody's mind, documentary versus fiction. I mean, it's a, it's such a, it's a fascinating – once we started, like, go, writing back and forth about it, I was like, wow, this is a complicated subject. Um, yeah, it really is because there's films that are – I didn't want to say overtly political because they're not really, but that come couched in politics but tend not to be about them at all in a way. And, and certainly you get kind of, um, uh, I mean, it's a wonderful film, but sort of Frost Nixon to me is so overt in what it's about. It's not, uh, it's not really political. It's just sort of more about two characters kind of butting heads. Well, that's uh, the funny thing is that that's a film about, uh, uh, you know, who's more political than Nixon. And yet right. I don't think of that personally as a political film for right. exactly the reason you're saying. And but then, but actually now you say it, but then think about, um, you know, Oliver Stone's Nixon which I think is an amazingly political film in a really bizarre way. Cause uh, I mean, I went to that expecting, you know, and looking to have my tummy rubbed in this way. I wanted Oliver Stone just to spend two hours telling me what a piece of shit Nixon was, uh, which would have been fine. We all would have loved it. But by the end of it, he actually goes deeply into the humanity of this miserable bastard. And I kind of walk out, you know, with no change in my view of his politics. Well, Robert Altman's secret honor does that. Also. that yeah yeah exactly uh, that's you, a picture where you just you start thinking I, i'm not gonna watch this guy for 90 minutes I mean, it's crazy <laughs> you know uh and and you come out at the end and and you do still think he's crazy yeah. but you have a sort of an understanding of w who he is and why he's like he is yeah and it's it's i it was a movie that changed my mind during the, sh the watching of the movie wow you know i thought i'm i i, I didn't even know if i wanted to stay yeah and yeah. I, I stuck it out and i realized that yeah that's the point yeah, I mean, I have a friend who won't go see either of those films because he's just, ah, I hate that guy who gives a shit. And you're like, well, okay. <laughs> well, and in many ways, to me, the most interesting and effective political films, often, not always, but often are the films that aren't the obvious, you know, because, yeah. because the, there is the preaching to the choir kind of film, which, which, which has a value. It fires up the base of people who agree with you. But I think films that make you consider the humanity of somebody that you wouldn't see as a human being. Well, or that's that why make... actors like to play villains, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's like you, you don't do a one. You don't do a one note like, unfortunately, Michael Shannon does in The Shape of Water, a movie I otherwise love. Uh, but mostly there's there are nuances that you do. Yeah. Uh, and and you get to know the actor's system himself. Well, what made this guy this way? Why is he like he is? Why is he doing why is he doing these things? Well, that's that's interesting. And that's 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 a, about humanity. You know? Yeah. And on some level, I think understanding those things actually is one of the things that has the biggest chance of having an, a real societal impact. You know, if, if, if you make a film that says racism is bad, yeah, everybody's going to agree with you. It's not like, if you make a film saying, aren't we all racist on some level? Don't, don't we all have that instinct to be afraid of people who are different than us? Mm -hmm. And don't we have to then look in the mirror and look at that and go, okay, how do I work with that, that, that as a human being, I'm scared of people who are different than me? That's a film that's going to actually have much more chance of having an impact on somebody's I, choices. I, absolutely, because I, I happen to agree with that hypothesis i think i think that everybody is racist and that, that we all struggle against it every day well i think it's kind of i think it was probably a very useful survival mechanism for, for um you know a hundred thousand years <laughs> yeah. ago yeah i mean that you know anybody who didn't look like your group was a danger right. probably killed. um in the same way i think probably some of the paranoia and fear around homosexuality came mm -hmm. out of you needed everybody to have as many babies as possible because otherwise things were good i mean a lot of the things that are now incredibly damaging probably were rooted in something that made sense in you know so half a million years ago. And so I think what Let's Change really happened is for us to all look in the mirror and go, oh yeah, I have all those DNA instincts that are not useful and not applicable anymore. 
you know, as well as our instinct towards violence is, or, I mean, there's a lot of things in us as human beings that I feel like the only way to really change, like it's one of something we try to deal with in mother night, which is, you know, if, if you basically go, I could never be a Nazi, that's very dangerous yeah. because that's how you get Nazis. Mm -hmm. It's only if you go, yes, if I grew up in that time in that place, I could have been susceptible to some of the same horrible stuff. Yeah. That's what lets you maybe look at your own life and, and change things. And so I kind of feel like that's the best of many of the political films are what they do is they make you kind of look in the mirror and go, Oh, I have more of that in me than I wish. How do I work on that? Unfortunately, the, the, the money isn't making the movie that blames it all on the other guy. So, of course. <laughs> and it's, I, you know, my, my favorite American writer, uh, Walt Kelly said it best, of course, with we have met the enemy and he, he is, is us. us. Yeah. But that is not a concept everybody wants to look at. So you end up with, you know, movies that just sort of pat you in the head. So and let's tell see you the list. Oh, you're good oh. and you're bad. And uh, now Joe's, Joe's telling us we have to go. So. No, no, yeah. I'm just thinking. I mean, it's, it's, all, get it's, going, get it's going. nice to philosophize. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, <laughs> you have to be specific. Yes. Now, here we go. You're start well, at the bottom and work your way I'll up. I'll start at the bottom and work my way up. Okay. As you say, your well, least favorite favorite. Yeah. And I got to say, this, I, I, these are all such favorites that I could, these are fairly transposable in terms of an order. But but the one, I, starting with number 10 for no reason other than it's number 10, uh, I guess would be All the President's Men, um, which, you know, it's a great, great movie. We've all we've all seen it. I mean, probably anybody listening, anybody interested enough in film to listen to a podcast about it is probably seen the film. If you haven't, you have to see it. Um, <laughs> well, you, you don't know, have to see it. You can see the post instead now. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's Prequel. new. It's got, it's got actors that people know. And That's true. It's much more popular. Um. <laughs> yeah, it didn't, but we didn't quite have the same, you know, impact there was something about all the president's <laughs> men that captured i mean they managed to take the process of investigation and make it so utterly cinematic and yeah. utterly exciting and and it's a story like like day of the jackal it's a story you already know the end yes and it's still no, compelling yeah but here here's my question because i go back and forth on that one i i love the film obviously and um you know i think we're about the same age i mean it was like you know, I, I, my political consciousness woke up during Watergate as a child watching that stuff. So I was riveted, but is the film goes back to what we were talking about a couple minutes ago. It, do you think the film itself is political? I mean, it, it really does go deep into the investigation and it is in a context of obviously one of the great political scandals. Um, well, I think it's political in the sense that, and again, I saw, you know, I was, I was 14 when Nixon resigned. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the film came out when I was like 16, 17. And I was still in the process of awakening to the mendacity of politics, yeah. the, you know, that we lived in a society where you couldn't accept things on face value and that we all, it doesn't, it's just America. It's like anywhere in the modern world and probably the more modern, the more that's the case. But so it wasn't political. And again, in the sense of taking a side on an issue, because like, right. you know, who's on, like, I guess, I guess nobody's on Nixon's side. I mean, I mean, like, <laughs> no, it's good that he, Pat was. you know, well, yeah, <laughs> even there, are you, are you sure? Are we sure? Uh, yeah. Let's say like, more than the current first lady. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's a point, point taken, point taken. You don't um, feel the chemistry there, Jim? I don't know. <laughs> Sadly, I think neither does she at all. It's, uh, um, but, um, but yeah, so for me, it was political in the sense of, becoming aware and part of the process of becoming aware of wow we live in a really complicated world and we can't listen to what we hear with an with an un, sure. with an yeah. with, a, with an unguarded ear um and that was at age 16 17 18 you know that was still new that was still angering and and empowering and 
all those things. So again, yes, I could see the point that now I, I don't think at age 57, I'd see that film and, and be affected on a political level, but right. it was, it was part of a very important time for me because I grew up, you know, in America and America was the great country and the good country. And we did things right. And we played above board. And, we played, and so that realization of things being more complicated than that was to me very political, even if it wasn't about a specific political point of view. Right. Well, that's a good point too, because with time, things do, you know, it is hard to go back and look at that film the way it did when it was happening or when the film came out and realize that that was a revelation to some of us, at least. I mean, well, know, if you hadn't read you, the book Joe. and I, I hadn't read, read the book, so I, I didn't know all the stories. I, I read the headlines in the paper, yeah, but I didn't realize how deep things went and how much manipulation went on, how much the press had been manipulated and what they had to go through and the threats that had happened. So it was, you know, what's fascinating is I just reread the book. And given the current political climate, it's really fascinating because so many of the phrases, including fake news, including, I mean, it's really the echoes. I mean, I figured there'd be some echoes, but you could just replace Nixon with Trump and replace a few key names with a few key names. And a lot of this stuff is like, <laughs> oh, my God, it's the same speech. It's the same statement. It's the same accusation about the press. It's the same. It's very bizarre. It was it was it was it, it shocked me how powerful it was that nothing has changed You're yeah. right back there. So, so, so that was that was that was one um, uh, to work because I, I want to get some of the ones that aren't on this as well. But um, next in in not particularly necessarily in this order, but it was the Thin Blue Line, Earl Morris's great oh, documentary. Sure, yeah. And again, that for me was an eye opener. Uh, once again, I grew up believing the justice system, believing that if somebody's in jail, they probably believe belong there, and that you know we don't execute people that we don't that we shouldn't, and all those things. And I saw that movie and went. Oh my God. And there was a movie that, and it also was very inspiring to me as a filmmaker because here was a film that literally saved somebody's life. I mean, this man was on death row and there's a lot of argument that can be made that if that film had never been made, he would have been executed. And that film literally saved his life. So it was inspiring about the power of film to make social change. I mean, and make concrete social change, not just a kind of theoretic, but like somebody didn't die because somebody made this movie. But it also opened my eyes to, oh, there are people sitting on death row and sitting in prisons who don't deserve to be there. And it may be through error. It may be through racism. It may be through somebody not being able to afford a lawyer. It may be through somebody wanting to frame somebody because it looks good for their record if somebody's in jail for a crime and you can't let it be unsolved. But I had never thought about those issues before that movie. And so that movie flattened me. I mean, I came out, I remember, you know, I was, I was, I was crying. I was, I mean, it really shook me. And, and I've had a lifelong interest ever since in cases of people who are, uh, in jail who shouldn't be or people who, you know, have been, you know, finally let out, uh, you know, the innocence project is something that yeah. I've supported for years and years and years. And I've sort of had this fantasy of doing a documentary series about people, you know, in prison who, who didn't do anything. Um, and, but that, that film started that for me. And, and, and it also was for me a first awareness of how great a documentary could be. I mean, again, I, cause I was a teenager and I was just starting to learn right. like what, what film could be and what, what, yeah, weren't they? They were sort of mostly boring movies about monkeys. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and this was, this was as riveting as the most riveting thriller you could imagine. It was yeah. like, you know, you just were breathless for half the film. Like what's going to happen? What's going to, you know, and, and, uh, that was, that was an eye opener on that level too. So that, that film could have hit a lot of bells for me. And that was one I seen, it wasn't that, um, sort of in the, not quite the earliest days of Siskel and Ebert on national TV, but I remember that was one that they championed particularly. There was that first few years of their show, at least where they were really great about kind of finding films that weren't going to have a huge audience otherwise and pushing the hell out of them. And I feel like they were, they were big on that one. 
Well, that was something that, yeah, certainly early on they, they did a lot of in general. And then they kind of got away from, which was too bad. Because yeah. I felt that was, in some ways, I feel like the most valuable thing a critic can do or any of us can do in talking about is like turn people on to movies they might not know or turn a generation on to something they might have missed or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, that yeah. to me feels like if I do something like this, you know, like what we're doing here. Well, that's here, the whole point. That's I, the whole plot. Sitting here with Joe Dante, you can tell me, Joe. Is that not the point of well, the Trailers from Hell website? That's the point. <laughs> Try to get people interested in movies that they wouldn't know about. And now that there are so many movies and so many titles and so many pieces of information floating around in the in the ether, I mean, it, when I was a kid, it was pretty easy, easy to focus on movies because yeah. there wasn't a lot of other stuff around. But now there's games and YouTube and all that stuff. And, and to get people focused on something, particularly something that isn't new, uh, is is a challenge. So the the least you can do is to show them what's out there, and that's what that's that's why we do this. And and part of what's most interesting too, as as I get older, is is I forget that there's generations who didn't grow up with some of this stuff. I mean, because we were talking about films on this list, and I was saying, oh, you know, some of these are so well known, they're like going to be too obvious. It's like, but not well, necessarily well known to, well known yeah. to our generation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but yeah. somebody so, who's twenty three who loves movies didn't <gasps> grow up with these movies when they were released, and so. Sometimes the ones that you think are obvious are actually ones that, and I find that, you know, occasionally I'll teach or, and, and it's, it's amazing your frame of reference. You know, I grew up with the Beatles. I don't know, I don't know the music the kids today are listening to. And it's the same thing with movies in reverse. I mean, I films that to me are like, of course, everyone knows all the president's men, you know, I'll go to Sundance and teach at the film lab and there'll be somebody who says, yeah, I never saw all the president's men. You'll realize, oh yeah, that's, it's a generational yeah, thing. T- teaching can be daunting. <laughs> But it's also, yeah, it's, it's, there's so much, as Joe says, out now. It's it's hard to keep up with what came out this week, let alone be aware of. And that's not even counting all the new stuff that came out. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. 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 And then, But at least we live in a time that we didn't grow up with where it's all accessible. I mean, one It's of the all things- accessible, but it's not. But it used to be with a sense of great discovery and relief that you found yes. something. It, because, it always the same. And you had to work at it. You had yes. to stay up late. You had yeah. to, you know. But now it's all sort of there on a silver platter and it's, eh. You can take it or leave it. That's a good point. You know, because I did. I grew up in revival theaters. I was lucky enough to grow up in New York City, and we had a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. And that was where my film education was. Yeah. I would go to the Thalia one day, and I'd go to the Street Playhouse the next day. And, and, I, it's, a, and it's a different experience than yes. working on your computer. Well, I, I had a, this was so great. It was a couple of years ago, I was doing something at the New Beverly, um, and uh, uh, no, several years. I got to program it for a week, which was a blast. And, oh, and this wow. kid came up to me. That's cool. Anyway, he was like 22, 23, and he was just... He was so, he'd been out here a couple of weeks and he came from, you know, somewhere in the Midwest and he was just so happy to be in a place where he was a huge movie junkie, but to be in a place where he can actually go to a different movie theater every night of the week and see a different old film. And then maybe on Friday and Saturday, go see a new release. But he had been to, uh, you know, the Egyptian the night before for something and Cine Family the night before that for, and, you know, yeah, and now here, there, the there were, there were a little few more options then. There were a few more, but, <laughs> but. You know, it's easy to sort of forget that we live in this this crazy mecca where, you know, these movies are actually playing in theaters. Yeah, if you live in Topeka, it's a little hard to find them. Yeah. So I, What's your next one? Uh, next one, working my way up. Um, uh, similarly, another documentary that had tremendous impact on me and on society was Hearts and Minds, uh, mm-hmm. the, which was sort mm-hmm. of among the uh, really – Credited, and I think deservedly so, with being among the things that helped turn the tide in, in, in the country against the Vietnam War. I mean, there was always, always already a very strong voice against it. But when that film came out, won the Oscar and played all over the country, played in the Midwest, played in places yeah. that hadn't been, hadn't risen up against the war, there was a real, it really fed the movement to go, this, it doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum, this war isn't working. And people are dying and nobody's quite sure what they're dying for. And, and 
not only is the film brilliantly made and affecting and powerful, but but to me it was notable because it had that effect on people. It, it, there were I remember my grandfather saw the movie. My grandfather was 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 much more conservative. He was much more you know a you know Republican kind of guy, and he saw that movie and he was like, okay, the war's wrong. I mean, it was it had that sort of effect, and, and it was made amazingly to that end. I I, th- I thought that the greatness of that film is it wasn't only preaching to the choir. It was a film that clearly had a point of view, but found a way that if you didn't go in agreeing with its point of view, you might get won over. Uh, and that was really remarkable. And and for a film that was that blatantly political to win an Oscar at that time was also... It was a, a big controversy. That was, you know, and, and it had a huge impact. It was, a, it was That was the time when the Oscars did something wonderful because that was a film that probably would have only played in New York and LA and Chicago. And, mm-hmm. right. But once it won the Oscar, it played everywhere. And that was when a lot of people saw it. And that was when a lot of people went, whoa, I didn't even know a lot of this stuff about what my own country was doing. Um, so that one was was huge for me. Um, one that it's not a great movie. It, it, it's, I, I won't, I don't want to give away, but it had, it's a great ending of a, of a movie and it, but it was had such a wallop that, and I was a kid when I saw it, um, is I'm a fugitive from a chain gang. Mm-hmm. Oh, 1932. Sure, yeah. Um, it, you know, Paul Muni is amazing through the whole film and it's about, it's about the criminal justice system and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an expose on, on the evils of what was very common in the South in terms of people being trapped on chain gangs and, but there's a lot of beyond Paul Muni, A lot of the actors aren't very good. A lot of it's very preachy. A lot of it's, but there, where the film ends up, and I won't say where it ends up because I really think people should see it. Even if you're watching the movie and your eyes are rolling with the hokiness, stay with it because where it takes you to eventually is a place of great, great power. And when I saw that, I was maybe again 11, 12, 13 years old, and it was one of my first times being walloped with politics, but also with irony, with with the fact that the society does fail people. Um, and so for me, that was an incredibly important film that literally haunted my dreams. I actually had dreams about that movie for quite a while after I saw it, you know, cause the nightmare of what that main character goes through of being imprisoned for wrong reasons. And he goes through all this horrible stuff and, and uh, whatever it's datedness or flaws, it it's overall impact still. I watched that that, that long ago and it's still, you get to the very end and you go, Whoa. And you know, I, I think, it's worth seeing, and yes, there are scenes that are. It's, it's a 1932 Hollywood film. It's gonna. There are times where you go, eh. but boy, that last few minutes make it all worthwhile. And I'm, I don't want to say more than that about you know the specifics, but um, it's, a, it's a great film, I think. Um, and and uh, but prior to that time when you know the town was crawling with reds who were trying to say something to the world before they realized you could get in trouble for that so. <laughs> well, that's always been such a strange dance in hollywood i mean the politics of hollywood and the politics in hollywood and and the idea that it was run by you know a bunch of communists uh when it's always been very very complicated because there's always been both strong left and right wing elements of hollywood and there's always been all these battles and you know it's not like the money people in hollywood have ever been particularly liberal some of the <laughs> directors and writers and actors have been but like the money people aren't out there saying yeah let's 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 bring in socialism i mean so it's always been a real dance and yeah. uh you know and it's been tragic when when the outside world sort of goes no you can't say that stuff i mean you know, my 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 dad was blacklisted although in, a, in an interesting way because he wasn't famous enough to know that he was he was a an actor and director he worked mostly in the theater in new york uh, but he always did some work in films and all that, and then in TV. And then one day it just stopped. And he stopped doing any work in film and television. But nobody ever subpoenaed him or asked him any questions. Or And he wasn't so aggressively active politically that he didn't even think, oh, this is about my politics. He actually thought, I guess I suck. I mean, he just, he just decided I'm bad in film. And it was only in the 60s that somebody that he knew at CBS said, no, your name was on a list of do not hire. Wow. Because he was very liberal and he was very, you know, and he 
supported unions and causes and you unions. know but unions. Yeah, <laughs> you know but he was he was definitely like that kind of lefty 50s guy but but you know but his whole life was changed by it and he didn't even know uh, which is just weird. I mean, uh, when we, some ways it's weirder than like getting called in and knowing, okay, yeah, I'm yeah. taking a stand. Dalton Trumbo just, knew what happened to him. Yeah, yeah. My dad was just like, uh, I guess I'm not good at that. I mean, well, luckily, what, what was his name? Mark Gordon. Oh. Not not the Mark Gordon we, who's right. now the pretty producer, but <laughs> yeah. uh, um, yeah, he's one of those people. You, you might know his face. He's you know he did a million TV. Commercials. I mean, again, the, our generation would. He he isn't. He, he's been gone now for. I guess about seven years and, and didn't act much near the end of his life, but, but, you know, did a ton of, he was a New York character actor, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, he was in take the money and run. He was in a, you know, he did, he did a lot of movies and TV shows, but his, his bread and butter was always theater. That was what he sort of, that was his love. Um, so, typical, so typical comic. Oh yeah. 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> no, no, he was, and, and, and look, he was, he was politically ridiculous at times. I mean, my father was one of those people who like when he decided the world worked a certain way, you were not going to convince him out of that. So I remember having an argument with him in, in the 70s or early 80s or something where he actually tried to defend Stalin and oh, yeah. said, like, how do we know he was so bad? And I'm like, Dad, the Russians don't even defend him anymore. He's like, really? Come on. It's like, you know, yeah, how do we know? Because we it's we know. It's not, not everything is propaganda. But, the, old, you know. the old ways die hard. If yeah. your death count has a comma in it, it's... Uh... <laughs> wow. So working my, my way up the list, um, yeah. the next one up would, would, would be Missing, like the great sure, Costagavras yeah. film. Um, and it's one of two that are on the list. Missing is actually the more recent. Um, what I love about Missing, Missing is, is, you know, there are two kinds of political films. There's, there's an, there are angry political films and they're very sorrowful political films. Missing to me is a very sorrowful film. And because of it, again, I think it, it, was, it affected a lot of people who didn't necessarily agree with its politics or come in to see a political film. Right. It's just a great story. You know, but Jack- the, tr- the trick to that is by having a protagonist who changes during the course of the movie the way the audience is supposed to think. Right. Yes. And I think it was done. I mean, Jack Lemmon is so powerful in the film. Yeah. And, you know, if, for those who don't know the film, it's, you know, he, he plays a conservative American businessman whose son disappears in, in South America at the time. Well, at the time we've done it for a long time, but America has a long history of getting involved with overthrowing regimes in South and Central America if we don't like them or we don't have a good relationship with them and installing our own sort of puppet dictators. And we've done that all over the world. I mean, you know, Saddam Hussein was our guy. Um, so this this is, this this story was based on a true story of a young American who was down there kind of helping, working with the poor, visiting, and, and was killed during one of these coups. And um, basically his father goes down to try to find him, assuming that the U.S. government and the embassy and all that is going to help him. And instead, he finds that they're far more interested in protecting this new government they've helped install and who is a politically friendly government than they are in helping him find his son. And he comes to realize that, again, his country isn't quite what it thought it was in terms of our actual actions. Um, but by having a protagonist, as you, as you were saying, that that starts from a more conservative place and isn't a political man, is, a, is somebody who's you know probably a Republican, but not a guy who even thinks that much about politics. And watching him become... Radicalized. sort of radicalized by this process was something that, that again, I, I knew people who were not political who themselves were a little radicalized by that movie because then they, it got them to go read about the real stories and right. it got them to... Mm-hmm. And so because of that, it's a very... But it's also just a very powerful... It still really holds up on an emotional level. Sissy's Basic is wonderful. It's, it's, it's beautifully made. And, um, you know, I, I, I just think that kind of film is very powerful because it can reach beyond the obvious audience. Mm-hmm. Um, then above that on my list... And uh, sort of a little bit more of the angry kind of political film was, was Costa Garfus' film Z, oh. which is the thing that really made him a world-famous name. Uh, 
Z is a story, again, based on truth, of a, a 1963 assassination of a Greek uh, political leader, a guy who was a liberal, but kind of a centrist liberal. He wasn't like a radical. But basically, the, the generals in Greece were sort of moving towards taking over the country. And this guy was a very populist figure who wanted to sort of spread democracy as opposed to shut down democracy. And so they had him killed. And uh, basically, the film is 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 a thriller. It is, and it is a thrilling thriller. I mean, there is there are chase sequences and things in there that not only hold up today, but you realize have been imitated about a thousand times since. Uh, it's mostly the story of a journalist trying to break the story of what really happened, and and the brick wall that he faces trying to do that, and the fact that his own life is put into terrible danger because the government would much rather kill him than let the story come out, and his very complicated and wily way of getting out the story. Uh, which which did happen. The story did come out in the end, although it didn't change Greece's fate for quite a while. Um, but it's one of those things that always makes me think of the fact that, like, there's a there's a chase sequence where a journalist is being being chased on the street by a car, and the music's going, and there's a the sound of cameras clicking, and and it's been redone so many times since. And it's one of those things. If you see the film now for the first time, you might sit there watching the film, going, "Oh, I've seen this kind of thing." <laughs> but but it's one of those films that, yeah, but you've seen this kind of thing because this film did it first. Right. And that you know, for those of us who love movies, you get that all the time. You get those things where where you see the film that originated a style or a or a, a scene or a or, or a story point or a, and it feels cliched, but it only feels cliched because somebody started that. And Z to me is one of those movies that now. It looks like, yeah, I've seen this kind of thing. It's like, yeah, but you saw this kind of thing because Casagar was because of this. such a great job. And again, it was it, it was a film about regional politics in 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 you know Middle Europe, and yet became a huge hit in America. Won the Oscar, I think, also for for best foreign film, and had a worldwide impact. And and was something that really kind of helped feed democracy movements all over the place, uh, because it's it is something that's gone on through a lot of histories that of people in power bumping off those that they don't like. Um, and one of the things that's really powerful in the film is the end of the film. There's a list of all the things that were banned in Greece once the generals got in, in, mm. in power. And among things that were banned was literally the letter that represented this guy's name, uh, which was Z. Z. Um, so you could not use that letter in Greece for about eight years. Um, they just do something like that similar in, uh, in China or something with the letter M. Oh, did they? Oh, yes. Oh. I just read that? I'm, I'm, I'm dating us now. Did, did, oh, I <laughs> no. know when they recorded that. But you're right. There was something because it's used in a in a way to mock the, uh, the, the, Z, uh, Zia, right? Uh, they're they're uh, the the head of. Oh, I wish I remember. The anyway, uh, since we don't know the story well, <laughs> yeah, we well, um, shouldn't bring it up. Yes, well, you can do what I'm doing now and Google it and find out rather than have whenever you read you, it. Yeah, whenever you find like it, <laughs> you can you can d jump in. And... But I think that that's an interesting. Uh, I'm sure people have done double features of missing and Z. Uh, but just sort of the the uh, it would be fun. It's been so many years since I've seen either, but to go back and watch them both and kind of look at the difference in how the same filmmaker works to tell similar uh, intended stories in completely different industries, because you could make a much more overtly, um, uh, specifically political film uh, outside of the states than you could here. And, how do you manage to smuggle all that stuff into a you know a thriller about a guy looking for his son? Yeah, and Missing was made by an American studio, so there were yeah. all those all those uh, restrictions. I'm sure exist. Yeah, and he had to channel um, himself through there. And also, it's interesting to watch, as it always is, somebody's evolution as a filmmaker. I mean, they were made; the two films were made close to 20 years Somewhere, apart. Yeah. So, just also his evolution as a human being, I think, shows up when you look at the you know. One is sort of an older, wiser perspective. One is a young man's, an angry young man's film. And, yes. and, and I think they're both of great value. I mean, I do think a double feature would actually be great because 
they're both wonderful, wonderful films. And where they're similar, where they're different is really worth looking at. That's a really, that's a really good point. Actually, that makes me want to go do that. I don't yeah. think I've ever no, I'm, that. I think I'm gonna, that's the yeah. next thing I'm going to do is watch the two of them. I think I'm going to watch them together. Just, just here because we uh, like to provide uh, as much as we can on the Trailers from Hell podcast. Um, the Chinese government banned the letter N as part of a widespread censorship clampdown that occurred after word got out Sunday that presidential term limits might be dropped allowing Chinese President Xi Jinping to stay in power indefinitely. Yes. Uh, potentially, uh, but what does that have to... That's that became um, very appealing to our president. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Immediately, yeah. He immediately, he immediately like, jumped yeah. on that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. The, um, a professor of Chinese language and literature at the University of Pennsylvania said the government likely feared that N was referring to the number of terms of office as in a mathematical equation N is greater than two. It's all very... Wow. That's... Wow, I'll bet this gets edited out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah I don't want anybody to hear this and get the idea to turn it into a movie because I'm going to do that. So, well, that's uh, nice. Yeah, I mean, the sequel to Z would be N. And, like, yeah, that actually well, by the way, and then, yeah, well, no, because our movies now have to appeal to the Chinese and we would not be able to. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, so. nobody, no, actually, yeah, no studio right now would make a film probably that was seen as that overtly. I mean, look at what Scorsese went through with uh, Quindon and, and, yeah. and, and, you know, it's... You got, yeah. you got to put a panda in it if you're sending it to. <laughs> um, so working my way up, uh, I guess the next one up would be for me was, was, was Network. Um, oh yeah, which again is a, you know is 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 not an overtly political movie in terms of an an issue movie, except it's it is about an entire way of society. Operating. It was then, boy. It was, and it and it and it's, it's now a documentary. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. That is, it, it, if you see this film for the first time now, it, you will go like, yeah, that's what TV's like. But when it came out. It was a rather shocking film and a sat deep deep satire about the media, but the, the the scene that really to me still retains all the political power of that film is when Ned Beatty sits down. Um, oh, who's the, who's the wonderful actor? Who's the Peter, Peter, Finch. Peter, Peter Finch. Finch? Thank you. And sort of explains the way the world explains works. the world to him. Yes, quite literally. And, and it's, it's absolutely could have been shot yesterday. Yeah. Nothing has changed. There's nothing in that speech, and it's like, and it is, it is like a ten minute monologue, and it's one of those remarkable pieces of filmmaking because yeah, the is. acting is great. It's shot fairly simply, beautifully, but fairly simply. Ned Beatty just talks for ten minutes, and you're never bored. In fact, you're at the edge of your seat as he explains sort of the modern capitalist monopoly system, how it works, why it works the way it works, and why it will never change. And it is hysterically funny, and it is deeply depressing. And frightening. And, oh, and terribly frightening. And you realize, yeah, you're watching this wild satire and everything you just heard is exactly true. And as as you pointed out, it's it's not even that wild of satire anymore. I mean... No, Sybil the Soothsayer is on every night now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't wonder, but here's the thing, you know, is there, with the exception of the on-air assassination uh, of a uh, television performer, pretty much everything else in that film has come to be. So... Is it ridiculous to scoff at the notion that soon we're going to start shooting TV hosts no, on the because, air? And when you when you think about the scene in which they decide that that's what they're going to do, the yeah. executives all sitting around calmly, very rational, uh, very rationally, and they say, "Well, we're just going to have to kill him." Yeah, and that no one bats an eye. It's no. like, well, that's sure, that's that's a thing we could do, and they all talk about how they're going to do it, right. and everybody's very calm, and it's just another corporate decision, you know, that they're going to kill the guy and they're going to kill him on air. And they're gonna and there's a, and there's a ringer. There's a you know it, it's 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 it could happen tomorrow. So who do you think is going to get it first? That's the... uh, 
Well, that gets into who would you want to have. <laughs> well, it, it will not be them, that's for sure. <laughs> Um, no, it is. A, it's a it's a stunning movie, and uh, it was a great movie then. Yeah, and it's an even greater movie now. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I saw think, my. I think history is just kid just. Chayefsky's stuff. I mean, he, his ability. A hospital. hospital. Another, Absolutely. Another, another movie. That another like, another documentary. Yeah. Yes. You know, another movie where you go, well, that happened. You know. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's. Uh, it, 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 he he was he was able to oh, face in the crowd. Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, all of these things have happened in some way. You know, and he was really had his finger on it. And no matter all, all good directors, different directors, um, but it's the scripts are well, just so is, good. Um, it's Ben. Is it? Oh, it's Bud Schulberg. Bud Schulberg. Sorry. Sorry, that's right. Eh. All eh. these commies. It's good, a fellow good. traveler. <laughs> <laughs> fellow traveler, exactly. But 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 hospitals, absolutely. I mean, the thing about hospital again is it, it is much more documentary, and was even then than mm-hmm. anybody realized because. That was a time, much like we grew up feeling, oh, America's great and we're beyond beyond reproach and we don't make mistakes and we don't kill people we shouldn't. And we don't. The also we also grew up with the idea of doctors as gods and that mm-hmm. doctors don't kill people. You know, now we are all we've been exposed enough that we know, yeah, terrible medical errors get made and it's all for profit. And they all get covered up. Yeah, and it all gets covered up and and it's all about money. And but at that time when that movie came out, when the hospital came out, you know. You didn't question your doctor. You didn't question the medical. You, they but was, I, but was, we still, I'm trying to think, is there a single, has there been, it's saying elsewhere, but that was kind of a different approach. Has there been actually, that was all, all the doctor shows <laughs> that have been on, has there ever been one that's tried to kind of do the hospital as a TV show where it's not that more of a cut, horror film? Not that cuttingly dark. <laughs> I, I worked briefly on it. I worked on a show that I felt deserved much more of a life called Gideon's Crossing that was, mm. that ABC did and that Andre Brower was the lead in. Right. And, it came close. Like the, the best episode of that show, I didn't direct it, but the very best episode of the show was uh, an episode where a guy goes into a hospital with some minor chest pains, and by and the dies. end of the episode, he's dead. <laughs> and basically, you watch the series of terrible right. errors and choices and ego by doctors, mm-hmm. and I know everything, and this is, and oh, I gave him the wrong drug, and the nurse makes a mistake. And by the end of it, the guy who basically had nothing wrong with him is dead. And then that ran through the rest of the season. It was, it was his wife kind of coming in trying to find out the truth of what happened to her husband. So. That was hospital-ish, although right. they, well, a, there's a tiny comic sub. They the played hospital. it more for the horror, whereas Hospital plays it more for the the black, black, black comedy. Yeah, but Gideon's Crossing played it for just the horror. I mean, and it really was one of those horrifying they hours of Paraclete of Caborga and uh, Gideon. <sighs> yes. <laughs> Wait, now this it, we'll we'll cut this if it's if it's terrible. The the it's one of the things I always want to ask you. Am I am I the the actor who plays her father, Bernard Hughes? He's also yes. He also plays one of the doctors. Okay, yeah, because it always makes me. I, I have no idea why. To, I, I have no <laughs> idea why he plays a doctor and he plays the father. And I look it up on IMDb, and only one of them is credited to him. And I go, and he looks just different, and he's made up a little. And I go, is it just a doctor who looks like it? No, it's it's him. It's Bernard Hughes. <laughs> Not quite sure what the yeah. I don't no know what why. that was. No idea why. Yeah, it was, but interesting. What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way to to hurt that film. It's it's flawless. So what's next? Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or call she, the police. Or call the police like <laughs> she should have, exactly. 
quickly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then from beneath the Hollywood sign is the gin joint for you. So what's, next? so what's next? And um, next one is again. So we, 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 you and I kind of wrote, wrote about this one because there's almost nothing left to say. Oh, about is this our it. number one? Uh, no, this is number three. Oh, okay, All right. uh, number three. Go. Number three is Doctor Strange Love. Sure. Which, okay. What's number two? Yeah. I mean, no. <laughs> no, but it is funny. I was saying, like, what do you say about Doctor Strange Love that yeah. hasn't been said? I mean, if you haven't seen it already, go see it. Well, get I, it. I, what know. I always say about Doctor Strange Love is, if if movies actually had the power to change the world, yes, Doctor Strange Love <laughs> had come out, we would have all disarmed. Because yes. you can't watch that movie and not think, well, this is just stupid. Uh, which is why he, during the making of the movie, which he was t- thinking of doing as a serious picture, uh, the absurdity of it just became so overbearing that it, j- it, it became on its own uh, a, a comedy because there was no other way in his mind to treat the whole thing. And then, of course, Failsafe, which was being made actually at the same time, uh, is a totally serious movie. I don't think there's a single laugh in, in, no. in Failsafe. No, it's, it's, a, it's a grim and movie. It's a, it's a great movie. It's a However, great movie. if you watch it right after watching Dr. Strangelove, it's hard not to laugh because you see the two. Well, you know, there's no, I don't think you ever see any Russians in uh, Failsafe. No. In but I'm saying, but if you watch Dr. Strangelove and then see well, the serious version, it's the, hard the, not the to find humor all. in the absurdity of Failsafe no, no, or, no. and what they're dealing with. I mean, it's a wonderful film. But it's a really, that is a very strong film too. Yeah. I mean, that, was, that, that, that was sort of almost on the list, Failsafe, yeah. because it, it, it was, to me, Strangelove is maybe the greater film because in its comedy, it deals with it. It, it actually is more effective. It's so, yeah. it's what Kubrick discovered, I think, doing it, was that it, because you can't, yeah. It's so insane you can't be serious yeah. about it. And, 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 and Failsafe is just at the end of the movie. It's just devastating. I mean, yeah. it, it, there's just it's so you're so it's so hopeless. <laughs> and somehow, look, I mean, and Strangelove certainly is too in terms of its ending, but because of the humor but also of it, but, but because it, but but there's a certain distance in Kubrick yes. to all of these characters. I mean, they're, 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 the characters in Failsafe are are very warm and upfront. You know who they are, and they're they're they actually work as as dramatic characters you can identify with. Uh, in in Strange Love, you're you're always at a remove because of the the satire and because of the casting and because of, and it's all done totally straight, which is which is why the first day that picture came out, which I saw in New York City, no one laughed. <laughs> well, the New York Times gave it a terrible review. Well, they, nobody laughed. I mean, I mean the New York Times was like, like, "How dare you portray a president as as this kind of you know moron, fool yeah. and idiot oh. and you know." And, well, if they only knew. If yeah, I guess yeah. You say. it's like it's like, and once again, great old my beer. Great filmmakers have this way of being prescient. You know, it's uh, actually, well, I, I would take I would take uh, Merck and Muffley, the 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 Peter Sellers character, the president as the president right me now. Too. But I'd rather so have, fast. I'd rather have Henry Fonda. Yes. Oh yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, absolutely. sure. Sure. But I mean, to take your thesis seriously, I mean. Yeah, it didn't change the world, but you know, you hear those. I, there are certainly people who've been affected enough by Strange Love who may have had an impact on us. Well, I hope that some of them were in government. Um, or, yeah, there's that wasn't it, that Russian who refused to you know press the button yeah, right. thirty yeah. years ago. But nobody ever asked him whether he saw Doctor Strange Love. <laughs> yeah, well, we should do that. I bet he did. Well, can you I bet track he him did. Down? We'll track him down. Yeah, you know, we'll have him on the show. <laughs> Maybe he'll you know, find but, out his favorite Fred Astaire movies. But are. it is funny because I, I, I bring in Topato. Yes, you what? We bring in Topato. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know that it overtly changed the politics of the world, but I do think things like this, that kind of subversive film. It certainly didn't hurt. Uh, yeah. Who knows what 
how many people maybe were affected in ways that ripple out. I mean, I, 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 I find it hard to believe it's that. It's still being watched. That, well, I bet that, you without that film, Sebastian Gorka has no career. That's <laughs> probably true. I, <laughs> that's probably taking it the wrong way, though. <laughs> and then going up one more, um, also Kubrick, um, you know, but lesser known. I mean, known, but lesser known. So if you haven't seen it, definitely see it. Paths of Glory. Oh, yes. Which was the first Probably the first truly overtly political movie. It's, a, it's an anti-war movie. It's you know, but it's also about how power corrupts and and how and how the people in, the people who die in war are never the people who deserve to die in war. They're always people who are who are sort of victims of it. Uh, and I saw that when I was a kid. My dad, you know, in his political way, wanted to start introducing me to the idea of war as as not a glorious, wonderful thing. Uh, and so I was probably about nine or ten when I first saw it, and it and it floored me and then i and that actually was one of the things that first really turned me on to movies in a more serious way i mean kubrick was always, always my touchstone because the thing that first really did it was 2001 because i went opening day in new york and i was a kid because my, my dad thought oh he'll like it as rocket ships <laughs> and you know i had no idea what he was taking me into it and of course at age seven i had no idea what i was watching but the fact that i didn't know obsessed me i got so obsessed with that movie even as a little kid and I, it's, a, it's a hypnotic movie so i was like i dragged my my poor dad back over and over and over again and that was really what started the love affair with what film could be but did but, you feel i mean i had that with a couple of films and that's one of them where as a kid i thought if i can understand this film i can understand adults <laughs> oh i can well that one i felt like i could understand life the universe i mean what i was what we were doing here all those things that 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 you even as a kid start to have like what is what is all this? What but I felt theoretically I felt adults knew all that, so that was the. I think I was. That I was your I, fatal flaw. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, as you now know. Clearly. <laughs> but Paths of Glory was was so. Uh, I mean, it's it's so dramatically powerful. It's so beautifully shot. I mean, that film, that's film I've watched probably thirty times. You know, I, I, every couple of years I watch it again, and it 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 so holds up. Uh, it, it's spectacularly gorgeous looking. The script is really strong. And and it, it's and it's so well cast. Oh, I mean every single actor down to the smallest, and the line, many of them are familiar actors that you would sure. see on westerns and stuff. Yeah, but they are all perfectly cast. And it's one of those movies you can't watch that movie and think of war as this glorious quest. I mean, it was powerful enough that it was banned in France for many many years. I mean, the you know it was based on a real incident where where French generals uh, had their uh, military their their artillery fire on their own troops because their own troops weren't weren't rushing into a suicidal attack that made no sense to, to gain a few mm. yards of land. And so there's, the generals were miles and miles away, were so outraged that the men wouldn't just happily die for absolutely no reason that they started blowing up their own people. If they, and, won't, if they won't face German bullets, then by God, they'll face French ones. Yes. Indeed. Says George McCready. Yes. Well, he was, I'm interested, though, because we talked about this um, with the Dollop guys last week. Uh, we talked about how hard it is and how very few war movies are not, no matter what their intent, come across effectively as anti-war films because it's just hard to tell stories in that world. I think, um, and I don't think you'll take this uh, badly, I think Path of Glory does it better than any war film ever, but I think you have managed to make one of the few films that, that comes very close to being effective at that with Midnight Clear. And I wonder if, did you... Um, I mean, yeah, obviously, of course, you thought about Paths of Glory. Oh, you're yeah, making yeah, that was a huge Did, did you come to influence. any understanding of how, how to get around that, of what those issues are? I mean, why is it that... Well, I mean... Or more what, how what, do you avoid them, I guess. Well, what they what, what both of those films have in common, and yes, I mean, Paths of Glory was, was, was a huge influence on, on Midnight Clear, and that was probably why I wanted to make Midnight Clear, was to sort of try to make 
my own mini version of Pat. I mean, I had no no thought that I was going to make as great a movie, but but the stories had something in common, which was yeah. sort of the sacrifice of innocence in in pointlessness. And I, and what and what I loved about the, Pat, the the Midnight Clear story was it took World War II, which was the quote unquote good the war. Good war. Yeah. It was the war you weren't allowed to question. Yeah. And I don't question that. Yes, it. Yes, yes. You had there was you had to stop Hitler, and 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 people had to die, and there was no way around it except if the world had acted differently after World War One. Of course, Hitler may have never risen to power, but that's a whole other thing. But the fact is that even in a good war, that it was mostly a bunch of innocent people, kids killing a bunch of other innocent kids, to me was really a valuable idea, uh, and that was what I got when I read William Wharton's book. Um, and I think that in in a way, Paths of Glory also captures that same idea. It it, it is the the total messy, murky awfulness for the people who are in the trenches. Mm -hmm. And the films do it in very different ways. And Kubrick did it in a way that was mind-bogglingly brilliant. But 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 capturing the very fact that there is nothing glorious about this. It's muddy and ugly and bloody and and painful and it hurts to die and you don't want to be there and it's all over nothing. It's all it's also that people sitting far away can can bask in the glory, and and that was something that we tried to take into into a, a midnight clear is that idea that these guys you know were all very very bright guys who in the case of the case of that story and that's a true story midnight clear you know is actually it's 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 a something novel. That happened to Wharton yeah it's Wharton I mean Wharton I mean the, the the one conversation I ever had with him and he lived on a houseboat in France and like he was a complete recluse but the one conversation he said he said that, yeah everything happened in that movie the way it happened I mean in the book the way it happened. And when I stuck very, very close to the book in making the film because it was the book's very cinematic. I, I mean, yeah. the biggest thing I had to do was edit because it was like a 500 page book. He, well, he wrote it as a screenplay originally. That I didn't know. Um, yeah, no, I have, that, I have a friend back in Philadelphia who was obsessed with his work. That's and, interesting. And I, even I didn't know that. Yeah, he'd apparently written it as a screenplay first wow. and then turned oh, it into a book. I would read that. <laughs> I wonder if mine ended up being close to what his. I mean, I, probably because oh. I stayed very close to his book. I mean, I, you know. I mean, I would freely, I would happily share screenplay credit with with with, with, with Wharton on that, you know, because <laughs> yeah. I just stole whatever I could from the book. I'm um, I'm going to ask my friend. Maybe he, I can't. That's uh, fascinating. If he ever, if he has a copy, I would kill to see that. Let me see. Um, Probably doesn't, but worth looking. But into. that was what the book captured for me too. Was just sort of the ugliness of it that these kids were going through, and that and that they there was nothing glorious in any way about it, and it, and, and that and that the Germans who were trying to kill them and they were trying to kill were also a bunch of kids. And in fact, by that point in World War II, they were a bunch of thirteen and twelve year olds because everybody else had been killed. Um, so the German army really was, by that point when the war was about to be lost, was mostly old men and little boys. And and it didn't take, I didn't have to do much to make that reality ugly. Uh, you know, the problem, as you said, is a lot of war movies, in spite of themselves, if, even if they want to be anti-war, they make it look very glamorous. But the reality was, there was nothing glamorous left in, in World War II at that point. I mean, the Germans were, were all 65 or 12. Right. You know, the Americans were all miserable and disheartened and watch everybody they know die horribly. So it really, all we had to do was be honest. I mean, if we basically told it the way it was, uh, it was a great book that I, I read as 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 uh, it, one of the pieces of research called Wartime, which was about, uh, I don't I forget who the writer was, but it just basically cataloged the experience of really being in war. And, you know, people being shot to death, not with a bullet, but with their friend's finger that got shot off of the friend, and then the finger went through their chest. <laughs> and, you know, the, the the how bloody and horrible it really is, and how insane it was, like the the American um, officers who had had no military training, but they were too old and or too powerful in business or whatever to be put into the field. So they would be kind of commissioned as officers without having any idea about really how to run a war. 
and yet they'd be in charge of what people were being told to do and you know oh yeah go go scale that mountain and take it over and everybody would die um or in the one specific case that they talked about there was there were these um amphibious vehicles that just didn't work they sank and they kept putting people in them and sending them out and watching them sink and watching americans drown because nobody wanted to be the one to admit that these things wouldn't work um so so you read those things and you go hey, it's really not that hard to make war not look glamorous you just stay to those yet, things people seem to have a hard time it's uh... well the, the thing about war and i guess and it's funny maybe that's part of it is that paths of glory and midnight clear both there's not a lot of heroism in them yeah uh, there's heroism of a moral kind i mean i mean certainly kirk douglas's character in paths of glory is, is is very heroic but he's not heroic on the battlefield he's heroic in a right. courtroom trying to save the lives of his men because the ba- the story, and again, it's based on the truth, where these men, after this terrible failed attack where, you know, there was no way to win, there was no, they, the French were completely outnumbered, then they were shot by their own, their, their own troops from behind and bombed by their, uh, basically, uh, the, uh, the French generals ordered a court-martial and ordered men picked at random to face the firing squad uh, for cowardice. But nothing specifically about the men that were picked. They were picked by, by, by lot. So you had men in one case, one of them had been unconscious for the entire battle. He was, he was knocked out at the very start of it and was, and they're all facing death for things that they didn't do. Um, but because of, there's no real glamor or heroism in, in the war. Yeah, the, movie. It's, the only heroism is, right. is Kirk Douglas not trying to kill anybody, but trying to save the lives of these men who have done nothing wrong and who died for somebody else's ego. Uh, the problem is once you get into real battles where there is real hero, I mean, there is real heroism in war. Um, that doesn't make war good or glamorous, but it's hard. when you show real heroism in action, it's admirable. You know, when you see somebody sacrifice themselves for, the, for their for their brothers in arms. Or, yeah, and I think there's a saved. belief that if you show a heroic act or someone attempting a heroic act and then getting cut down and it turns out to be futile, there's a belief that that is the more powerful message where I think the more powerful message is, wow, he's a hero. Yeah, like I think it's very psychologically, point. it's very hard yeah. to make heroic yeah. acts not admirable or not, or yeah. not, not, I mean, of course they are admirable, but not, um, not have a glamour to them. I mean, I, right. I, it's probably been done, but it's very, I'm, it's super challenging. Yeah. Uh, and I think avoiding that altogether. I mean, the guys in, in like clear, just, just getting, trying to, they're just trying not to die. Yeah. It's really, at this point, they just don't want, they just want to go home. Yeah. They don't, you know, there's, there's one Jewish soldier who's really pissed at Hitler and wants to do something. And of course, in the end, he's one of the people who wants to broker a peace deal with the Germans because he's like, they don't deserve, these kids don't deserve to die. We don't deserve to die. How do we get out of here? Um, and, 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 and I think that's kind of the paths of glory's genius is it's right. And then in one of the few combat scenes in your film, they're the people they're killing do not have it coming and it's horrifying. And yeah. It's, yeah. It's, no, which is, which is more, even if, even if the, the, the army, even if Germany had to be defeated, the people that were sent out to, to do the right. killing, you know, I mean, these, the guys in the trenches for Germany weren't the SS. They weren't the people running the concentration. They were, they were draftees. They were, yeah. you know, and, and again, the longer the war went on, the more they were children. Um, or old, old people who were, and who were mostly told by that point, you know, if you don't go, we'll kill your family. I mean, yeah. your choice is you can go to war or we kill you and everybody that, you know, you all go to concentration camps. And yeah. so people went, but there, you know, with no more belief in the great glory of the Fuhrer than, than, than the Americans had at that point. Right. Um, so, but, but yeah, Pass the Glory, and it, it is one of the great exposés, not just about war, but also about power. And that's the other thing that makes it such a great political film to me is, Yes, it's about war, but it's also about how power corrupts and and how power those in power, how the one percent treat the ninety nine percent, as it were, you know, and and it captures that within the world of war. But you could also almost apply it to any situation, right. um, you know. I'm sure big corporations, I'm sure, operate much in the same way in sacrificing people's health, safety, whatever, 
you know, to their own causes. So I, I feel it has a resonance that goes beyond even just war. Right. Uh, although it's clearly first and foremost an anti-war movie, but the absurdity of people who see those underneath them as ants or as less than human or Slaughter. as fodder yeah. uh, is part of the whole way a world works that is divided by class. Um, which probably is a good segue to my first, the number yes, one. Yes, before on you get, do you want to do a quick lightning round of like two or three of the ones that didn't make yes, your list sure. before? I, I would we, be uh... happy to. Because um, <clears throat> we knew when I were talking about how like <laughs> there were so many great films that weren't on my list that um, that are less known or less appreciated. One film I, I love, I think one of the best American political films of recent years, and it, it just went under the radar for reasons I'll never, maybe, maybe, maybe because it was too political, but was Warren Beatty's film, uh, Bullworth. Yeah. Um, that is a, that is a pissed off, angry political movie, and it's funny, and it's dark, and it's disturbing, and it's and again, it's it, like Ned Beatty's monologue in in in, in, Net, in Network. You've got you know Warren Beatty doing another Beatty, uh, uh, doing these monologues about the American political system or the American health system or the American, I mean, all sorts of elements of American life, and they're brilliant, and they're angry, and they're truthful, and, and they, they rhyme, and they and they <laughs> rhyme, and and you know it it deals with. The truth, it you know, again, most American political films stay in the realm of the safe, stay in the realm of the you know, war is bad, or you know, no one should starve. Or this movie isn't safe, it's about yeah, people starve in this country because of greed, people die in the hospitals because of greed. People, it's a movie about the fact it is a country run by greed. It's, well, and also, he points it at Democrats, too. Oh, yes, it's not just yes, about how absolutely. evil, no, and that's are. part of why the film is so powerful. It is not a partisan film, I mean. He's clearly a liberal figure, uh, and Beatty's clearly yeah. a liberal figure, but he is condemning the system. Yeah. He's not going after the actions of a few. He's saying the system is set up and works a certain way, and it's working the way it's supposed to work, and that's the problem. And that as long as you have this system yeah. of theoretic democracy, but that's really about serving the powerful, it doesn't matter if the powerful think the Vietnam War was good or bad. It doesn't matter. You are basically – it is a system that, that works for a very few people and doesn't work for the vast majority. And that's not about Republican or Democrat or anything else. And, and I think that's a really bold, ballsy thing for a U.S. film to say. And it, you don't see it often. Um, and Beatty's great in it. I think it may be his best performance. You know, I think, uh, I mean, I think often with Beatty, he's Beatty. You know, this was a case where he plays a guy who's losing it and is really convincing. Yeah. Um, and it deals with race in some really interesting ways. I mean, it really is, it's, it's out there. And I feel like it's a film that needs to be celebrated for being out there. And instead, I think it freaked people out. It got good reviews, but it didn't get it didn't get the kind of critical embrace yeah. that got people over. Because I always think there's a people resisting political films. I think they're going to be good for you. Uh, ironically, Bullworth is one of the most entertaining political films ever. Made. I mean, it's, it's not good for you at all. It's I mean, it's good yeah. for you in terms of your ideas well, about hilarious. the world, but it's hysterically it's, funny, yeah. and it's yep. and it's very politically incorrect all over the place, and it's saying things you're not supposed to say. Um, and whether it's about race relationships or about it's, 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 you know, and I, I just felt it was really sad and, and that the film freaked people out, I think enough that they didn't, it never got the embrace. Cause I feel like, and I feel like the film ripe to be rediscovered Man. because it's the same in a, same, in a way, the same angry energy that led us to a president Trump is what this film was trying to address. Uh, it was just trying to address it in a more, in a more constructive way. Yeah. But it but it dealt with the fact that America is full of ever more pissed off people who feel like their their government, their the corporate world, all those things, their health system, whatever, do nothing to serve them. And they're right. 
Uh, and to me, that's really cool. And, and it's just one of those films that, oh man, I'd love it to be rediscovered the way a lot of films get that, you know, a lot of films that we now think of as the great classics, of course, were not embraced that way when they first showed up on the scene. I mean, Strange Love being one of them that was very lukewarm in its response. And yeah, only but it doesn't later seem to have, people don't talk about it very much and it doesn't, um, well, they don't talk about Bullworth at all. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah no, it's it's just, uh, it was never made. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and, and which is just odd. I oh, mean, it's just, just his latest picture is going to get even less people talking about it. And it's a nice movie. <laughs> I, yeah, but that that at least is is you know it's it's uh, I say ancient history, but you know a movie about Howard Hughes is a sort of no, more specialized. It thing was not that, all Quran. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, and, exactly. and it was and it was yeah. The, 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 it feels to me like Bullworth had a chance. I mean, it should have had a chance. It felt like I it, think the studio was afraid of it. Well, I also think a movie that says to everybody who walks into it, no matter who you are, there's at least a minute and a half of that movie that goes, by the way, some of the shit's your fault. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's People a, don't like that. No, you're yeah. absolutely right. It's, and that's the brilliance of the movie. Yeah. Because nobody gets off the hook. Right. Nobody doesn't. The rich, poor, white, black, white, whatever. Nobody. Well, yeah. Nobody right, is off. This. It, it, it is definitely a movie that says you're all responsible. Yeah. No matter who you are sitting in that theater, and that is that's what's cool about it. But it's probably oh, but, but it also lulls you it. if you're, especially if you're sort of in one area, you're sort of going, yeah, those people are terrible. Those people are terrible. Oh wait, what me? How yeah. dare you? How dare yeah. you? Uh, I was with you. <laughs> and that's I think why it's great. But I'm sure you're right. I, I, now that you said it, I think that's probably exactly why the studio yeah. was scared of it, and why you know why they 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 couldn't market it and probably gave up very quickly on how to market it. Yeah, because it does. It does. I can't. I can't imagine having to market Bullworth. Oh, the poster is inexplicable. The, yeah, the artwork is just. It's just. I don't want to see that movie. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great, great, great movie. Yes, and, and deserves to be seen. So that's one. If 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 uh, of all the ones that weren't on the ten, I would just say if you haven't seen it, and chances are you haven't, because I mean, look, there's never been a Blu-ray release of it. The, yep. the DVD has been out of print for mm -hmm. years. Yep. I mean, it's like actually hard. It is, it is in an era where we're talking about, oh, you can find everything. That movie's actually hard to find. You know, a Warren Beatty, you know, comedy made by a big studio. Uh, but after you do it for trailers, somehow it'll have a risk. That's <laughs> right. That's right. Do it. Do it. <laughs> I'm trying to see if there's, what else on, on the list was, um, well, it's funny. There's a movie that got a lot of attention in its time and it's political in, in a, in a, different way but i, I kind of like to talk about his political movie because people don't think about that which is woody allen's films crime crime and misdemeanors crime oh. misdemeanors which is it's it's a film about morality not about mm. politics but it's where you kind of realize that oh they are those are not necessarily separable concepts i mean it's in no way an overt political film in terms of an issue but in dealing with at what point can we do terrible things and justify to ourselves that it's okay we do terrible things yeah and the fact that we all as human beings have that within us you know, maybe some of us have committed murder and talk ourselves into that's okay. And some of us just, whatever, cheated on our income tax or cheated on a spouse. Or, or own iPhones. All those things that we've done. <laughs> and we go, but I'm different or I'm okay or I'm not a bad person. I think a film that makes you go, or am I a bad person? And how do I justify the moral transgressions that I've done in my time? Uh, and, and how do I kind of blithely walk away from those? That's to me a very political thing, even though the film would never be seen in an obvious way as political. Right, uh, and, and that's a film that it has a reputation, but I do, I do, I don't, don't know if this generation is aware of it, and and especially now with Woody Allen going through a thing where because of his personal life, which is a best we won't even get into, he's been kind of castigated as an artist. I feel concerned that certain films he made like this that have great great value may get lost in a larger issue or a different issue of his 
personal conduct and what it was or wasn't, which, you know, who knows? Well, I think that's happening. Uh, there are people who are, you know, supposedly giving classes on Woody Allen and others pickets saying, no, you can't, you can't teach this guy because he's a bad guy. Um, also, the, the, the fact that he has been so prolific and he has made so many movies yeah. makes it a little more difficult to pick out necessarily the gems because they're, they're, they're not all great. No, yeah. uh, that's but, my favorite. But when you make that many pictures, yes. I mean, it's, and, and more power to him. I mean, many of us would wish that we could have made a picture a year or oh, two pictures God. a year. You know, and say, well, okay, if it's not very good, it's okay, I got another one. You know, um, that's not the way it is for most of us. You know, most of us don't have any angels or mentors or people who are going to fund whatever it is we do. Uh, and considering the fact that he's been lucky enough to have people over the years to fund every idea he's ever decided he wanted to make, practically, um, it's not surprising that some of the stuff doesn't work. But when it does work, I mean, he is, he is our Ingmar Bergman. Yeah. You know. Uh, and he has made, yeah, he went through a run particularly for a while there where he made a lot of films that I think are, are, are truly classic films. Yeah. I mean, there was a there was a period of fifteen or twenty years where not he, everything. If he'd, worked, if he'd but... only made Zelig, it would be enough. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. To make one film like that in, in a career, yeah. But to make Zelig and Annie Hall and yeah. you know, I mean, it's like you kind of. But and Crimes and Misdemeanors is is less talked about, which is why I love to bring it up because I feel like, you know, everybody it's so sees bleak. It is bleak. It's such a bleak. It movie. is deeply bleak. When, Although when, it's also, but it can be very, it has very funny moments. Come on, oh, he no, gets away with it. It's got a lot of, but that's why it's bleak. <laughs> yeah. It He's a Joe. horrible person. <laughs> I mean, Martin Lando's great in the movie. He, he humanizes him as, as best you can. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and obviously he had to pull oh, that out monster, of himself. Yes, no but he is a monster. Yeah. Yeah. And at the end of the picture, he's Here's the, just how many, happy as a clown. How many movies has Woody Allen made about uh, people who have done something horrible and gotten away with it and are living with the... There's at least three. Oh, it's interesting. No, that's clearly a big theme to him. But I don't yeah. know. That, I don't know that anyone other than Crimes and Misdemeanors was anywhere near as successful mm. at making you think about that in terms of your own life. That's, that's the best. I mean, whether one. it's Match Point or whatever. There's yeah. a lot of movies where, where yes, people escape punishment, but I think generally it's a more easy feeling of oh, that's awful, yeah. as opposed to oh, that's me. And yeah. I think what Crimes and Misdemeanor does is make you force you into a corner where it's almost impossible not to go oh, that's me. Right, and I think that's a rare and powerful thing for a film to do. But again, also like Bullworth, it's probably why it's not talked about as much. Yes, <laughs> yes. Although it did, it did. It's better known. It did better, better yeah, than no, Bullworth, sure. and and it did for a Woody Allen movie. None of his movies ever were that commercial. I mean, it's so funny for a guy who's made that many movies and won so many awards and been such a you know huge figure. His none of his films ever had a big yeah. box office. I mean, even Annie Hall was, and I think it may still be, but certainly was the lowest grossing Best Picture ever. You know, best Oscar, best picture ever. Um, I think I don't know if that's still the case, but it was for many, many years. I think moon, <laughs> I wonder about moonlighting. Yeah, that was when I thought somebody might, I might have read something saying it's now the lowest grossing. I mean, but I, I, have, I have a hard time believing that because oh, maybe it's including inflation because movie tickets being what they were, Annie Hall was was the numbers were very very small. small. I, mean, I think but, Midnight was it Midnight in Paris, the one uh, that was a, every now and then he has a now, that was a, that was a comparative hit. That's a, yeah, yeah, that was a hit. And sometimes surprising. It's not the ones that are always the most critically lauded by any means that were the ones that broke yeah. out because sometimes the, the most critically lauded were the hardest to sell. And, yep. um, but, but, you know, that, that film to me is what the heart of politics is, yeah. which, is which is personal responsibility. Um, and so I, I you know, that's a movie I really love, even though it's not a political film. But I know you make a great case for it, though. Um, well, let's, let's, before I have you, Nick, as I know what the first one is and we've discussed it, we're, we're here, and I'm not going to name it, but um, 
Uh, there's a wonderful company in England right now doing uh, beautiful, beautiful Blu-rays uh, called called Indicator. Indicator, yeah. Um, and uh, I was so thrilled um, personally when when recently two, two, they came out with two movies, one Charlie Varick, which is one of my all-time favorites, and another of my all-time favorites, um, both of which are beautiful restorations and loaded with all kinds of interesting stuff. And a uh, huge point of pride that my Trailers from Hell commentary was on Trailers from Hell on Charlie Varick and on this other film. And when I got it in the mail a couple of weeks ago, I sat down to uh, take another look at the movie and then to, to watch all the supplemental stuff. It's got a great commentary from the uh, the director, the writer director. Um, but it also had a, about a 10 minute interview with Keith Gordon. And uh, I, I watched it. I was about two minutes into it. And I was like, Oh God. Yeah, this is, this is, we are not only are we simpatico, but, this guy knows how to talk about movies and, and we got to get him on the show and uh, we have to make him do some commentaries. Um, but it's your number one choice. Do you want to talk about? Sure. Uh, the movie's blue collar. Yes. Um, and to me, it's probably the best American political film, certainly of the last 50 years. Uh, it, it, it is again, that rare thing in American political films. I mean, Bullworth had some of it. it blue collar even more is a pissed off movie. It is an unabashedly sort of Marxist movie. It, it, it goes places that American films just don't go. And yet it does it in an incredibly entertaining and interesting way with characters that you get completely caught up in. I mean, Paul Schrader pulls off the trick of making a movie that you don't think is a political movie. It's a heist until, film. Yeah, it's a, it's a heist movie that's kind of funny yeah. about these characters. You know, it's Richard Pryor and people that you kind of you kind of go in thinking, oh, this is fun. And it gets darker and darker and darker and more and more serious. And by the end you are drawn to conclusions that you might not otherwise go to, and it makes you think about the world differently. Uh, it's a film that literally says in dialogue its themes, which usually is death, but somehow this film does get away with it, which is basically the idea that by keeping blacks against whites, old against young, rich against poor, that is how the people in power in this country stay in power. And a very simple idea, but incredibly powerful, and yet he embeds it in this heist story. So you're so caught up that by the time that idea is, is thrown in your face very, very powerfully, uh, you've just been kind of caught up in these guys and wanting them to get away with it and not get hurt and not, and then you have to go, holy shit, that's real. That, this is truth. This is, um, and I had never, again, I had not been somebody who thought that much about class division because America's always, we've always, we're brought up on the idea of racial division as a, as, as a huge issue, but we, but as if that is the issue in and of itself. And the idea that a filmmaker was making a film saying, no, that's not the, that's not really the issue. That's an issue that's used to drive a wedge. That as long as poor whites and poor blacks and working class Hispanics are all at each other's throats, they're not going to get together and turn to the people that really have the money and the control and the power and say, no, no more. Um, that's a really powerful idea. But making a movie about that that's purely entertaining uh, was remarkable. And it's, you know, it was Richard, Richard Pryor had not been known as a dramatic actor at that point. He had he'd only done comedy. Um, and the fact is he gives a, a devastating performance. I mean, so it's, it is, you know, and he's funny as hell for quite a while, but by the end of the movie, it ain't funny anymore. And it is powerful and strong. Uh, Harvey Keitel does, I think some of his best work ever. Uh, Yafit Kodo, who again was not a known actor at that point is, is brilliant in it. Um, and it just kind of turns you upside down, but you're, you're on a ride and you don't realize that's where you're going. Uh, but it's unapologetic anger. And the, I mean, it, it opens with this pounding blues music, um, you know, which again, it's not, it's not like, it, it's not like an American movie. And the fact that Schrader managed to get it done, managed to get it 
financed by a studio and managed to find a real audience for it. I mean, the film wasn't a hit, but it did okay. It did well for a movie that's pretty blatantly, you know, about class divisions in America is a remarkable, remarkable achievement. And, and, you know, if you haven't seen it, it this new release, I got to say, I mean, I, I, I get no money from Indicator. I mean, I, I feel like I'm shilling for them, but I think they deserve it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're one of those companies that's really finding these kind of amazing movies and restoring them and doing beautiful jobs with them. And the nice thing is, yes, they're, they're an English company, but they're most of their releases, unless they're blocked from doing it, but almost all the releases in blue collars this way are region free. So that even though it's a UK release, you can buy it and play it on a US, you know, a blue player play, play without any trouble. Uh, which is part of what's wonderful about what they're doing because they're making films available for us here as well. They can often, it's that, like, that weird thing, often American film, Blue Collar is right. a very American film. Very. There is no U.S. Blu-ray release of yeah. Blue Collar. The only other release of Blu-ray is in Germany. Yeah, uh, I, I know, have the crappy which German is, Blu-ray. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> like, here again, here's again, again, it's, a, it's an, a film about politics in America yep. and you cannot find it in America. <laughs> uh, it's a very, that's a kind of weird thing. Um, but even Charlie Varick, I mean, a lot of their films are American films, um, that well, have, have been a, overlooked. A, not to hype them, but I do love them. Uh, you know, they're doing a Bud Bedecker box, five, five Blu-rays of Bud Bedecker films oh, coming out. I, I, they, the Bedecker box I've got is not a Blu-ray. Yeah. This, yeah. There was one that was done in the U S I think that yeah, was, yeah. you know, it's most of the Randolph Scott. Yeah. They're just coming out next month. But, uh, so yeah, I mean, I mean to, 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 to do a, a plug for, for a company that I don't have anything to admiration for, I feel happy yeah. about because yeah. I, I actually, as a, as a fan. I want them to stay in business and keep putting things out because yep. I mean, Blue Collar was a movie I was looking for for years. Yeah. I was just so so frustrated that I couldn't find a decent copy of it. And you know, there's a the US DVD is just not very good looking, and it's a it's a beautifully shot film. I mean, it's not pretty, it's ugly, but it's it's ugly in just the right way. Yeah. Um. And uh, have you listened to the commentary? Um. I have not listened to the commentary. It's amazing. It will. Change. I've watched it like twice, but I've It'll not. Only increase your appreciation for the film because so many of the things that look like they're brilliantly conceived and plotted are him on the fly because everything's falling apart it was a, it was a troubled shoot well Nightmare yes that, shoot. that is that is i mean I've read, I've read a lot of interviews over the i mean the fact that nobody that, liked that, nobody liked each other nobody liked yeah, each no other. one had a good time and and he actually <laughs> I, I i had the feeling didn't mind that in that these characters that start as friends you know right. become so yeah he was angry, so he tried to tr- he, he he fed that, but it led to apparently guns being pulled on the yeah. set. It led to uh, him being threatened. You know, I mean, I think I think it was I think the story is that Briar pulled a gun on him, and they basically said, you know, I'm not doing the scene the way you're telling me to do it. Which is, as a director, has got to be like, okay, I've now gone as far as I can go in terms of a direction that my my actor doesn't like. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had an actor pull a gun on me and say, no, I'm not doing it that no, I'm way. I'm sure it'll be kind. You're not it's sure that you can't remember? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it was a difficult shoot. They had no money. They had no time. And, and it makes the accomplishment of the film, I think, all the more remarkable, yeah. uh, was that he kind of marshaled this chaos into a, a film that feels not chaotic at all. As a first-time director. As a first-time director. Yeah, first-time director. He was, very, he was very established as a screenwriter, but had never directed it's it's i don't know if i can think of a better american first film i mean it's really you know it's i don't know that he's ever topped as a filmmaker since and i'm a, a fan of his work but i think that his first film may have been his best uh it's 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 it does so many things well at, at yeah. once and 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 it and again it's and it's really funny i mean they're in the, you know when they're when they're in the middle of the, the heist itself they're wearing these goofy disguises and they're it somehow manages to be hyper serious and utterly silly and and neither undercuts the other yeah. which and that's a hard thing to do i mean a lot of people try i mean it's a very uh, appealing thing to try to be really 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 serious and really funny at the same time but man it really works and i think yeah. schrader pulls it off beautifully and he creates characters that you really 
they're very damaged human beings and they're, you know, they're cheating on their wives or doing all these things. And yet you still completely are with them and care about them. And uh, because they feel like real people, yeah. they don't, they don't feel like characters created by a Hollywood movie. They feel like these are real working class guys and they do a lot of things wrong because they're just trying to get through their lives and not fall apart. And I think that's, you know, it's not something we've seen very much. Uh, when you consider how much of the truth of that movie is probably closer to the lives of most of America than most of the films we see. And yet you almost never see that kind of the hard edge of people who spend their lives working in factories and barely getting by. That's not something we've, we've dealt with a lot. Especially with that kind of accuracy. Too. It's, yeah. It's oh, with that, oh, yeah. With that kind of harsh honesty and, yeah. and, and no punches pulled. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a really, it's in a really, a truly important film. And it's a film that, that, you know, really, I think there's a chance that when you watch it, you will look at the world differently afterwards. I mean, that was, it, it absolutely had that effect. I mean, it still does. Every time I go back to it, I come away going, right. I mean, the things I keep thinking are the issues in America aren't necessarily the real issues in America. Uh, it, it captures, you know, the fact that even our problems are often what we're told are problems. There's a reason that our, that the media and everything tells us these are the issues. Because that serves even even that serves the people in power. Sure, and that's a very that's a very disturbing but important idea. Uh, well, Keith Gordon, thank you so very much uh, for coming out and doing this with us. It's been I, a blast. I uh, I couldn't have enjoyed it more. Other than I feel like I did all the talking. I feel like that's, I, I, that's I, the is trick. That okay? is, is that, is, yeah. Uh, yeah, but 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 we get all the money though. So um, uh, we do. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> no, All the money that this podcast makes, you know, just Joe, an honor to be a part of it. And just so much fun. I mean, this is just a great. Uh, uh, well, thank you. You'll have to um, uh, come in and do some uh, commentaries for the site whenever you would like. I there's nothing more fun for me. Than uh, I think we're I think we're doing some in April. Fantastic. Well, all right. Okay. Cool. Well, there you go. That's all. Our show is recorded in Hollywood, California, at the crossroads of the world. We are the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is Don Barrett, who also wrote, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the Movies That Made Me. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.